Welcome to Empowering Chats with Susan Burrell. This is where I help strong, capable women excavate the inner garbage in their life so they can become more confident and have more clarity on who they are and how they really want to be in the world. We have rich, juicy conversations about, yeah, you guessed it, empowerment, but also about radiating your brilliance and loving yourself more than you ever have in your life. And who doesn't want that? So join me now for another empowering chat. So I'm just giggling right now as I hit record because I'm going to have a conversation with a very interesting man who I think there's a big story behind his the arc of his life and how he became a, a pediatric cardiac, cardiac anesthesiologist, anesthesiologist, lots of S's there, and, and then into a mindfulness coach and awareness. And he wrote a book called Gain Without Pain, the Happiness Handbook for the Healthcare Professional. I want to welcome Dr. Greg Hammer. Greg, thanks for joining me. Wonderful to be with you, Susan. Yeah. So that's my first question, man. How, how did you go from, and you're a professor at the medical center at Stanford University and, 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 and you got all these doctor medicine things behind your name. How did you, how did you go from that modality into mindfulness and, and all of that intentionality and all that? What's the story there? Sure. Well, that I could probably weave together several threads, but I'll try to present it as one strand. When I was in medical school, and I and I was very interested actually in astronomy as a kid, and Ooh. transferred from one school to another, both because of the program in astronomy and nutritional science, which I was very interested in. When I was 18, I became a vegetarian, and I was a hippie. Uh, I'll go with that. I'm raising my hand. Raising my hand. <laughs> I'm sure we could have a great discussion about some of our youth uh, offline, but right. Um, I was very interested in the relationship between the very small and the very large, and so that that sort of fostered my interest in astronomy, since one has to go really from the quantum level to the question of whether the universe is expanding or not. Mm-hmm. But I found that the human body was an analogy also because we have subcellular organelles mm-hmm. that make up cells, that make up tissues, that make up organs, that make up our bodies. And the relationship from the small to the large is equally resonant, I would say, as it is in the physical universe as a whole. So I went to medical school and when there, first of all, I, I found that when I did my clinical rotations, I really enjoyed working with the people in pediatric medicine. I've always had a very low acceptance of egos and people who <laughs> think uh, highly of themselves and, and let you know it. So I've, I found that in medicine for children, in terms of the providers, the nurses, the physicians and others, there was so much less ego and plus they just seemed to be having a better time. So I I was sort of in it for the science, if you will, and decided that I could go into pediatric medicine or adult medicine and chose pediatrics. And then I got very interested in critical care medicine 
And I decided that I'm the kind of person that really likes things coming at me hot and heavy in medicine. And I like to be forced to think on my feet and make a quick decision and see the results of that decision rather soon. And that, you know, others prefer an office practice where you tweak this or tweak that and you see the patient back in a month and, you know, that's kind of your pace. But for me, it's, it's sort of the hot and heavy thing. So I, uh, decided to do another residency after my pediatric residency in anesthesiology, because at that time, uh, critical care medicine and pediatrics uh, lent itself to the combination of pediatrics and anesthesiology and critical care, which it still does, but uh, it's not nearly as popular as it used to be for a variety of reasons. So when I decided to go into cardiac anesthesia and intensive care, I knew I would be dealing with a lot of death and dying. And I thought, you know, people said, well, you can't get too close to your patients because your heart will be torn apart and so on. And that never really made a lot of sense to me. What made sense to me was get as close to you can as you can to the patient and their family and learn how to deal with death and dying. So I spent a lot of time pondering death and dying and it became clear to me that I needed to really come to terms with it. Yeah. I'd always been very interested in Eastern philosophy, as were many of us hippies. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I had studied some Buddhism in uh, university and that resonated with me and, and sort of had a spiritual path originating then as well. So when you put that together, uh, I think... I, I moved in the direction of a spiritual way of approaching death and dying and really focusing on tying lots of different threads together and adopting a personal way of thinking and being that was consistent with working in that environment. Um, so I just want to, I just want to say something to you, Craig, right now. I want to say thank you. Thank you for you following your path. And, and I'm not just putting some sugar on top of this uh, because, um, because I've been a type one diabetic for 30 years. So I've had, I've interacted with the medical community for a lot. And, uh, and I, what you said about not being interested in the people with the egos. I, I had this one doctor, lovely man, kept up on his research for diabetics. And I found acupuncture. It was life transforming for me. And I remember telling him about it. And he said, well, you know, that's just hypnotism. Chinese acupuncture. Uh, I was like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. So I so appreciate that you have brought together the truth of your being, which we are all spiritual beings, the truth of your being, and brought it into the, the medicine, the world of medicine, especially around children and death and dying, because, um, because just God bless you, Greg, because that's, that's heavy enough. And, and lots of medical professionals, like you said, instead of diving in and being present and not being afraid of getting a broken heart, which I can't even imagine, a lot of people will, will step back to keep themselves safe. So thank God for your open hearted, embrace of who you are and what you do and then how you show up in the world. 
I'm, I'm, I'm very moved and touched just by that short little synopsis you gave us. You know, so. I think Susan, that one way of thinking of our existence is that we're really just sort of playing in the sandbox mm -hmm. <laughs> and let's not get fooled into taking it too seriously. Let's try to understand the truth of our existence. And I'm, I may be getting a little bit woo-woo for, I don't know. I'll go. I'll I, don't, go. I don't know about your audience, but there are. Woo. I talk about stuff that people roll their eyes at. Yeah, please go. <laughs> well, it's funny because I'm in a very technical, uh, cutting edge area of medicine where we're, you know, having the patient's blood leave their body, go through a machine and re-enter their body and controlling pretty much every aspect of a person's physiology, either in the operating room while they're on cardiopulmonary bypass or in the intensive care unit requiring various sorts of life support. On the other hand, however, I believe, and I know, I don't just believe, but I know that the truth is elsewhere, that if this, the, the science of medicine is wonderful, but again, it's like playing in the sandbox. Um, the truth is uh, that I see the world as made of consciousness. And there's two ways of looking at the world. One is that, and this would be called the materialist view. Um, mm -hmm. It's not really necessarily related to materialism in the sense we usually think of it, but the materialist philosophy would be that you can understand the universe by breaking it down into its component parts and all of its chemistry and physics and biology and so on, and understand the way the world and the universe, in fact, are. What is the truth? And that our minds and our brains are made of these component parts. And out of that construct comes consciousness. The consciousness <laughs> arises from the mind or the brain. The other way of looking at the, at the world, I say the world in the grand sense, not just our planet, is that consciousness is primary. That consciousness is really all there is and that everything that we experience is a modulation of consciousness. And so I, that may be a little bit peripheral to what we're going to talk about, but it's important in terms of the way I think. And if the question is, you know, how did I get to where I am? That's really primary. And so, you know, sort of back to medicine, um, you know, this is something that I've paid more and more attention to as I've gotten older. You know, when we're young, there is an arc of one's life, as you put it in the beginning right. of the show. Um, as a young husband and parent, I was working so hard. I was on call all the time. And uh, I really, although I was into, into meditation and never really stopped thinking the way I was thinking as a teenager and, and the way I think now for that matter, that's never really changed. But I was so busy that I couldn't really attend to my thoughts and follow my thoughts and my heart to their logical being, if you will. I won't say to the to their end because there is no such thing. But um, exactly. you know, then you get a little bit older, and and your parental responsibilities um, become somewhat less. And then you get to be a little bit older yet, and you find that you've 
if you're lucky, you've accomplished everything you ever wanted to in your career. And now you have the opportunity to really sort of shift gears. And so, uh, although I've always been interested in helping other people, now it's really one of my most important missions is mentoring young medical students, residents, fellows, and, and junior faculty, and doing what I can to really help the world, not just my patients per se. So there is that arc. And I would say about 10 years ago, I really started diving into what's called Advaita, which is also called non-duality. So it's a way of thought that came from Buddhism and Hinduism, I think, um, that's based on the consciousness is primary way of thinking and being. And I just sort of woke up. Oh, even more. I mean, you sound like you were kind of walking with eyes wide open most of your life <laughs> anyway, but even more, right? Well, 10 years ago, I met a spiritual teacher of non-duality. His name is Rupert Spira. Oh, yes, I've heard of him. He's he's just, you know, we become good friends. He's 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 the perfect teacher for me because he's absolutely speaks so eloquently and with such an economy of words. And that goes along with Advaita and non-duality itself, which is also called a direct path. There's no dogma. Mm. Mm. You know, we 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 start at the top of the mountain and we stay there. And so I've been sitting with Rupert for a week, twice a year for the last 10 years or 11 years since really he started teaching. And so this has really kind of been uh, a synergistic process with my my prior way of thinking and being and my medical practice. And it also corresponds to a time when cutting edge universities and medical schools like Stanford began to fully recognize that burnout was becoming more and more prevalent. And so yeah. School of Medicine at Stanford convened a committee called WellMD, mm -hmm. where they, and I would say we, because I, I hopped on board early on, began to develop a construct of professional fulfillment and wellness for physicians. And the rubric really for WellMD, if you think of a pie cut in thirds with respect to professional fulfillment consists of three domains, each one third of the pie. And they are the culture in which we work, mm -hmm. the efficiency of our practice, so a very pragmatic domain. Mm -hmm. And the third domain is our personal resilience. And that's where I felt I really had something to contribute. I'm not uh, somebody who really has been involved in hospital administration and so on, but the culture of our working environment is so important as we know. Um, it's so important to treat each other with respect and honor and you know these macro and micro aggressions that we sort of took for, for granted historically, right. especially in medicine, I think, especially in some some specific specialties like surgery. And, and I my specialties really are related to surgery. Um, really ha have created a culture that in the past was not conducive to professional fulfillment. 
And secondly, the efficiency of practice is so important because no matter how wonderful the culture of, let's say we work in a clinic, like you're going to your endocrinologist or your internist, you go to the clinic, and even if the culture there is, is wonderful, everybody's very respectful and, and honors each other. And even if the individuals that work in that clinic are personally very resilient, if the place is very inefficient, no one's going to be yeah. very happy. So if the, right. you know, the clinic doctor is asked to see more patients every hour, but doesn't have enough exam rooms, there aren't enough technicians and assistants to process the patients and get them into the exam rooms. And they end up spending an extra 90 minutes every day at work and missing family dinners and activities with their children after school and so on. They're not going to be very happy, even if they're very resilient and the culture is wonderful. So you really need all three of these elements, the culture, efficiency, and then personal resilience. And as I said, the personal resilience part is where I felt I really had something to contribute because, you know, when you think about death and dying a lot and you apply that thought to uh, this non-duality way of thinking and being, uh, you, you, things arise that represent how to be more resilient. And so I was asked to give a lecture after I joined WellMD to a national hospital administrators meeting at Lake Tahoe. Mm -hmm. And I did. And then I was asked to give another talk and another talk and another talk. And I, I speak at many, many meetings around the world, you know, for the last 30 years. Um, and suddenly I was incorporating talks on wellness into my series of lectures that I was asked to give. So then I had a sabbatical. Um, which is a benefit that we get as uh, professors in the medical school. Uh, so I had six or eight months of sabbatical and I was thinking, well, what am I going to do? I, I didn't really want to go anywhere because I have a lab and I need to kind of feed and water that. And besides, I love it here. I have a home on Stanford campus. It's very utopian. So I decided to write a book. And that's the book that you mentioned. And it really is about personal resilience. And so my path to what we call mindfulness, and we could talk more about what the definition of that is and how to embrace that, but that includes decades of thought about death and dying and why we're here and who are we anyway, and other questions about the, the big universe to having a medical practice where there is a lot of death and dying and very fast paced and very technical, and yet at the core, there's something non-technical, if you will. Yeah. Then the WellMD program, and then the opportunity to write the book, and that was published in May of 2020, and I'm still doing quite a lot of television interviews and radio interviews and podcasts with wonderful people like yourself, so here we are. Well, I love, I love that... Um your exploration, your deep dive is being given out now to so many, especially people in the uh, medical community and that culture, because I think there's, and I'm just talking from my personal experience, Greg, but I've had many doctors that I was just a specimen, you know, I wasn't necessarily a full whole being, you know, 
And, um, and so I moved out of, for a while, I moved out, even though being insulin dependent, away from regular doctors who were authoritarian and going to tell me what to do. And if I didn't do exactly what they said, I was stupid, you know, plus I'm a woman and some of these were men that didn't like how I would handle things. And, um, but I found that I, I personally needed a different modality, you know, having a regular doctor, but having the, um, the other stuff, the spiritual stuff, the connect that using, um, naturopathic, uh, modalities like acupuncture and all this other stuff to, to deal with my whole self, not just the one thing that was seemingly broken, you know, seemingly not working. Um, so I appreciate that you brought that into, um, the medical community. So there is more of an awareness. So I want to talk about your, the gain without pain. I can't even tell you how many times I would go to a gym to work out. I stopped going because I don't like being told what to do. You get that point? So, <laughs> uh, so you know, and the, and the trainer would say no pain without gain or no gain without pain. And I'm like, I don't believe in that. Why I don't believe in it, I don't know. So let's talk about the, the title of your book, Gain Without Pain, and the, what that acronym, acronym actually means. Sure. Well, um, you know, it's a bit of a play on words. Um, since I'm an anesthesiologist, among other things, I deal with pain, try to prevent it. And if I can't prevent it, at least treat it. So GAIN is an acronym for what I think are the four pillars of spiritual wellness. And they are gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment. Mm. We talked a little bit about mindfulness in the beginning. And I would give credit to one of my heroes, who is Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, who's really a founder of what we call mindfulness. And his definition of mindfulness really resonates with me. And it is an awareness of the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. Ooh, so and that's a challenge. Those, we can talk about those three elements, but they really are embraced by the gain elements. So awareness of the present moment and gratitude is something that generally brings us to the present moment, but so does acceptance mm -hmm. on purpose. And that's the I in gain is intention, purpose, intention, non-judgmentally. And the N in gain is non-judgment. Why do we have to be purposeful? Well, this goes to the way that I think our brains function in our default mode. And I think there are explanations for this that relate to evolution. So mm -hmm. 50,000 years ago, early Homo sapiens might have been sitting in their cave in the late afternoon, starting a fire, trying to keep their family warm and fed and safe. And there could have been just outside the mouth of the cave, a saber-toothed tiger or some other predator. So they had to be very wary wariness, worry, if you will, having this sort of negativity bias, what's the worst thing that might happen, was adaptive to early Homo sapiens. It actually oh, yeah. facilitated their longevity, their ability to have more offspring. And so the genes, as it were, that code for these characteristics of wariness 
and what's the worst thing that might happen were gradually made more prevalent in the population because they facilitated survival. I'm, I'm kind of describing a very Darwinian way of looking at this. And, yeah. But I'm trying to explain and account for myself why our brains work the way we, we, they do. We, are, we do have a negativity bias and there are lots of data, well-conducted studies in the psychology literature that show that we tend to remember the negative and forget the positive and we all do this. So first of all, I think that piece of information alone might be a relief to some people who are secretly ashamed because they're a little depressive and tend to dwell on negative thoughts. No, we all do that. Yeah. And another and, property. And, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm nodding because I, I think we've turned another corner because of, um, and maybe it's a good thing, uh, because of all the self-help gurus and books that have been out there for the last few decades that was trying to correct that a bit, you know, redirect that um, negativity bias. But what it also did was just, in my mind, sometimes just put a Band-Aid on the negativity and then people would feel ashamed because they still felt horrible. And, yes. you know, well, who do I talk to about my depression? It, after I've been reading all these books, I shouldn't be depressed reading yeah, that's beautiful all the books. yes I, I i agree with that so you know we are generally we tend to be negative and we also a second trait that we have is we tend to overthink the past and the future and were you in my head you were in my head last week i can't <laughs> believe it okay go on well the point is that happiness really is in the present moment and then we go back to dr cabot sin's definition of mindfulness and it could be a definition for happiness Awareness of the present moment is primary. When we are in the present moment, if you think about the experiences you've had where you were truly present, it could be, you know, making love with your partner. It could be walking in the woods and feeling that wonderful sensation of that soft pine needle floor of the forest against the soles of your feet and looking up at the canopy above as the light filtered through the tall trees and, you know, just cast this beautiful hue and the, the oxygen rich smell of the forest itself. And in those moments, we feel so connected. Um, in Advaita, we say we would, the separate self would be lost and we're mm. just fully connected with everything mm. around us mm -hmm. and we're present. We're not worried about what we have to do tomorrow or the list of things when we get back home we have to do, or we're not thinking of something we did or said yesterday that we feel embarrassed about. We're present. And when we're really present, we're happy. And so you can think about that. And I think you will agree that your happiest times have been when you're right there in that moment. And so that's the first ingredient to happiness, if you will. So we were talking about intention or purposefulness. Why do we have to be purposeful? And the reason is that if we just relax into our default way of thinking, yeah. we are negative yep. and we're very distracted with the past and the future in ways that are maladaptive. So it's, it's adaptive to think about the past when it comes to identifying our mistakes so that we don't keep making them and also to savor our wonderful memories. And it's adaptive to think about the future in terms of putting bread on the table, so to speak, and looking forward to wonderful times. But beyond that, 
we overthink the past and with our negativity bias that results in regret, shame, embarrassment, and we're most harshly self-critical. So overthinking yeah. the past and, oh, why did I do that? And what did people think of me when that happened? And, you know, it leads to low self-esteem and the future, overthinking the future with our negativity bias leads to fear and anxiety. We catastrophize. Mm -hmm. What's the worst thing that might happen? So we have to have a plan so that when we recognize that our thoughts are negative, overthinking the past or, or the future, a light bulb goes off and we can, we can sink into the truth. And that's what the GAIN acronym and the practice is all about. So when we sit in the morning and do our GAIN practice, and we can talk about that, then we go out into the world. When we find that we're complaining about something, and typically a first world problem, right? we go to our gratitude. You know, instead of thinking about what I don't have, let's think about what I do have. And then when we're having something painful and we're starting to feel really bad and sorry for ourselves, we go to acceptance. How do we deal with the pain around us and within us? And That's when, the hardest thing for people, especially when there's pain within, and, go, and this goes back to death and dying and observing death and dying. It, it's so hard for people just to accept that their heart hurts or it's broken or they're so deeply sad because someone they loved has passed on. It's That's a challenge for people. It is a challenge, but what I have found is with this gain practice, baby steps, we learn in small increments and repetition. So, you know, it could be as little as a three minute practice every morning. And what happens is it orients us to these positive, important, ways of being very resilient and happy. And again, when we go out and we find we're being ungrateful or mm -hmm. we're succumbing to something painful or we're lapsing into our default way of thinking and not being intentional, or we're being very judgmental of others and particularly ourselves, light bulbs go off because we did our gain meditation in the morning and we, we learn to recognize when our thoughts and ways of being are contrary to what we know to be the truth, we reorder, we reorient ourselves very quickly. And it's amazing. And baby steps, the more we embrace this practice, the more positive and full of love we feel and the more resilient we are. I, I so love that entire um, synopsis, Greg, because it's, uh, I think it's exactly where most of humanity needs to be headed toward is becoming mindful, becoming aware of the present moment, becoming aware of how our um, judgments against ourselves radiate out and affect other people. And, you know, it's because it's kind of what we think about ourselves goes out, you know, everybody who's listening, you know, if you think you don't like yourself or you're trying to hide from not liking yourself or whatever, it goes out and other people pick up on that energy because we're all energetic beings and we're all connected. So having a, a, an awareness of gain, of gratitude and intention and non-judgment, everything you said, 
that right there. Wow. It sounds really simple. It just sounds really it simple. It is. And it's yet so it's a simple. practice. You know, the truth is, you know, elegant in its simplicity, isn't it? It's not complicated. No. And, you know, it's accessible to us at all times, as is happiness. It's our true nature is happiness. It just appears to be veiled by the right. way our brains have evolved. And the good news is we have this wonderful quality called neuroplasticity. And that means we can change the way we think and feel. We're capable of change, but we have to be intentional about it. We have to mm -hmm. have a plan. I've been trying to explain that to my 88 year old father who, who feels like he's losing words, you know, and he's fine, but he's losing words and he's getting depressed. And I'm like, dad, you just, you, your synapses just need to be, they need to interact with each other. And, you, and somehow you can do that is by getting up and walking outside and looking at a tree, you know, getting some sunshine doing. So he, and he's like, oh, I don't know, but, um, I just went every year. Uh, I have a practice that I started um, many years ago with um, my students. And, and one woman brought this idea of coming up with your word for the year. So we, I practice that all the time, my word for the year. And so coming into 2023, I was like, what is it? What is it? And I, I thought harmony, I harmony. And then I came up with these other things. So this is my four pillars. I'm just going to share with you, Greg, and everybody else. My four pillars, um, I, I, because also intentionality, often intentionality is I, I would like that. I want to become that or, you know, talking about the, you know, the manifestors in the world. I have to set an intention in order to receive it. So I, my four pillars for, were I, I want to be healthy. I want to be happy. I want to be harmonious. And in the same sitting of, uh, and meditating on that, I went, oh, no, I don't want those things. I am those things. I, if, I, if I look into myself and, and, and dipping into gratitude about this physical beingness that I am right now, the physical part of me, I already am healthy. I, I, you know, instead of looking backwards and going, oh, no, but I'm diabetic. No, no. Right now, in this moment, I am healthy. And right now in this moment, I am happy. I'm really, I'm happy. Wow. That's cool. And then therefore I'm harmonious because I'm healthy and happy and harmonious. And the fourth pillar is truth because that's the truth of it. And it's simple. It's just simple. Like you said, elegance. The truth of my being is that I am ha healthy, happy, and harmonious. And I think that that is so for anyone when you can distill it down into that present moment that really what is the truth of my beingness oh i'm that how cool yes well if we look at the gain acronym the elements of gain are very interconnected mm -hmm. so gratitude and acceptance and intention and non-judgment are very closely connected when you don't judge things and you see them for exactly what they are, there's a kind of benevolence to that that nourishes gratitude. I love that, yes. 
And, you know, when you embrace the idea that we're all made of the same stuff, whether it's consciousness or God or love or whatever works in, in one's thought rubric, mm-hmm. we're all the same stuff. And so you talk about harmony and yes, when we are present and non-judgmental, we see things clearly, we recognize that we're all the same stuff. So it's, you know, and the truth is just elegant in its simplicity. It just simply is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I so love for the that. Non-judgment part of the game meditation, I, I give people something to focus on. So I'll start at the beginning. It'll just take a few minutes. We what is gain? What is the gain meditation? We get up in the morning, we open the blinds, we are exposed to light if we're lucky enough to have light at that hour. Um, we do our morning hygiene thing. We find a comfortable, quiet place to sit. You know, a lot of people have thought that meditation meant sitting without moving for 30 minutes, mm-hmm. possibly in some uncomfortable position, mm-hmm. not scratching an itch, and then not having any thoughts at all, purging all thoughts from your mind. Well, this is not possible. So I'm going to tell you about a three-minute practice where you assume any position you like. I think sitting in a comfortable chair is great. Um, it's okay if you scratch an itch and you're not going to banish all thoughts from your mind. I'm going to give you with a set of thoughts through which to focus on which to focus as you go through the process. So we sit, we get in touch with our breath first. So central to all forms of meditation. And I think slowing our breath down with our eyes closed, focusing on the in-breath through our nose, pausing, with our chest expanded, our body, our being expanded, and then slowly, just without any effort at all, letting the air flow out through our nose or mouth. Slowing this process down, really getting in touch with it. What that does physiologically is it slows our heart rate, it lowers our blood pressure, it lowers the amount of adrenaline in our body. Yeah. It increases the amount of dopamine in our brain. So just simply focusing on the breath and slowing it down, and then contemplating that for which we're grateful. So you just a moment ago said, no, you're happy, even though you're diabetic, you're fine. And let's be grateful for the good health that we have. You know, nobody's health is going to be perfect. But instead of just lapsing into this default mode of whining to ourselves or others about little defects in our health, let's focus on the beauty of all these little subcellular, cellular tissue, organ, things going on together that produce our ability to walk and talk and breathe and enjoy. So we're grateful for our health. We're grateful for the place we live, which is generally relatively safe. We're not in Kiev or someplace where there are bombs dropping around us generally. So let's be grateful for those things. We focus on those things for which we're grateful, our family members, those that we love, our friends, our, for me, my work. I'm so grateful for the opportunity and the privilege of serving children and their families. So there's so much for which to be grateful. And then we move on to acceptance. And I think this is what separates the practice from just trying to think in a positive way. Mm-hmm. You can't just, like you said, put a Band-Aid on it or just sort of sugarcoat it. Pain is part of life as much as joy is part of life for all of us. 
So the idea here is we've we've gone through our gratitude. We go to acceptance. We actually picture something painful. Could be the loss of a family member. So I lost my son at the age of 31 or 35 years ago. Um, that comes to mind easily. So I actually bring that experience closer and closer. I think of opening my chest. Again, I'm in touch with my breath, slowly breathing in, pausing and breathing out. My chest opening, my heart opening, and I bring this pain into my heart and I envelop it with my heart. I nourish it with my heart. I merge with it until I can ask myself, can I live with this pain forever? And the answer is yes. And wow. what we find is that the pain is not as bad as we thought when we were resisting it. So there's a formula in my book, which is that suffering equals pain times resistance. Yes, and, that's, and that's the problem. The pain is there. If we try not to think about it or resist it in the myriad of other ways we've become quite adept at doing, the suffering increases. So suffering equals pain times resistance. We lower our resistance to the pain. We fully accept it, embrace it. And then we move on to intention. And th this might, we might start with at first five seconds of paying attention to all of the sensations we're having right now. So the tingling on the soles of our feet, the pressure of the chair and our body together, the breath, um, you know, the, the things that we're hearing, is there an airplane kind of coming and going way off in the distance? So we spend a few seconds being present and then we recognize that our intention is to spend more time being aware of the present moment. And our intention is also to be more positive. And this again goes back to gratitude. So they're very closely related. Then we transition to non-judgment. We might think of an image of the earth apparently suspended in space, one of these beautiful NASA images. And it's clear to us that the earth is neither good nor bad. We don't judge it. It simply is the planet that it is. And then it's only rational for us to think of ourselves the same way we look at the earth. We are neither good nor bad. We are simply the person that we are. And we repeat the phrase, I am. I am simply the person that I am. I am. And then we return to the breath and slowly open our eyes and we're ready to go out in the world. And we're feeling very present and relaxed and positive at that time. I love that affirmation at the end. I am simply the person that I am. I am. I'm, I, the, and the practice sounds very, um, it's a circle. It's a full circle. Start with the breath, return to the breath. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, literally it could be contemplating those four gain elements for 30 or 45 seconds each. It's very mm -hmm. easy. It doesn't have to be prolonged. And what happens is, as we discussed, Susan, that when you are thinking and being in a way that's not in accordance with these principles, a little light bulb goes off. So I tell a story about non-judgment, for example. I live on Stanford campus, which is just a wonderful place to live. And one of the wonderful things about it is I get to ride my bike to work. So I'm riding my bike to work. I've done my gain meditation, had some coffee, whatever. 
I'm riding to work, I always pass through this lane where there's this beautiful canopy of trees. And often early in the morning, the sun is rising or perhaps there's sunlight filtering through that canopy. And I'm thinking how beautiful this is, is I'm on my bicycle experiencing the sensations of the breeze and, and everything else one experiences while they're riding their bicycle. And then I see someone down the lane who's walking in the same direction that I'm riding. And they're kind of in the middle of the lane. And I'm starting to think, oh, that's kind of inconsiderate. They're, walk they're walking right in the middle. Why don't they go to the side so someone on a bike can go by? And then I get closer and I see they have buds in their ears and they're yeah. looking at a screen. And I'm thinking, we are in this beautiful place. Why are they looking at a screen? So I'm making more judgments. And then a light bulb goes off. I just did my game meditation and I pledged to be non-judgmental. And so I kind of laugh because I'm starting to violate my own directive so soon after I established it. And so when I pass the individual, I smile at him or her, and they look up to me and smile at me. And lo and behold, it was a positive interaction. It was a little hit of dopamine mm -hmm. instead of being a mildly negative interaction. And again, it's that light bulb moment. Oh, I'm being judgmental why don't I just drop the judgment and look and see what happens? And it's a positive experience. And so it's, as you said, very simple. These are very easy, easy things to, for which to, through which to live and, and think. And, and it requires uh, as often as possible returning to the present moment, right? To just go, wow, I, this is, this is not necessary. It's not necessary to interact that way. Absolutely. Greg, thank you. Thank you for explaining that um, to us. And uh, I have ideas. I've got, uh, you, you, my, my brain is popcorning now with uh, ideas to add into my daily, my personal daily practice. Um, so everybody, now is this book really, this book is, even though you wrote it for the health professionals, are well, I wrote people... it kind of inspired by the WellMD directive and burnout among physicians and other healthcare providers. But no, the reason that you and I are talking right now is that the game principles are universal. And even though the book came out two years ago, I'm still talking with people like you about it. And so, yes, I think that it, it's it's a book for everyone. Okay, so it's called Gain Without Pain. The Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals. I actually have a friend who's a, a pediatric nurse, and I'm going to send her this because she's um, experiencing cancer um, right now. So, you know, all of it kind of came together, right? So, Dr. Greg Hammer, thank you so much for joining me today and having this lovely conversation. I got chills as I'm closing out. Wow. And, and again, I want to reiterate to you, I am so deeply grateful that you were being who you were always meant to be. You got that idea early and you are bridging, uh, bridging cultures, bridging gaps that I personally experienced and felt needed to be bridged. So thank you so much for who you are and what you do. You're a blessing, truly. That's very kind of you, Susan. Thank you. You're welcome. So I'm just going to end with, and so it is, namaste. Well, that wraps up our empowering chat today. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, go to susanburrell.com. You can 
see all the information about my new book, Live an Empowered Life, a 30-Day Journey. You can also access guided meditations that I have on Insight Timer through the website and just see what else is out there on my site that you might find empowering and exciting to experience. You can also contact me through the website at susan at susanmorell.com. That's it for today. See you next time.